This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. I'm very excited this series that we're getting ready to do on Nigerian author Chinua Achebe and his groundbreaking book, Things Fall Apart, which was first published in 1958. And uh, there are not many books that have had the kind of positive worldwide impact that his book has had, and the reasons are numerous. Well, they are numerous. I became acquainted with Dr. Achebe's work late in life, kind of as an adult. I was teaching English at Bolton High School here in Memphis, Tennessee, and we had just started the IB program or the International Baccalaureate program. And this is a college prep curriculum. And Students in this program are required to read English language writers from all around the English-speaking world, not just from the UK or the US, which had been, for me, what I had been exposed to. And his was the first book I had ever read from an African writer. It was impactful for many reasons, and we'll talk about those, some personal, others academic. But I became like many other readers around the world who all of a sudden was aware of a new perspective of thinking about Africa in a way that I hadn't thought about before, albeit I had never even thought that I was unaware, if that <laughs> makes any sense. Because I had lived in Africa. I had mentioned before that my parents were missionaries. We'd lived most of the time in Brazil. But I had lived in Zimbabwe, Africa. My first time in Zimbabwe, uh, that was the first time I'd ever been on the continent of Africa, was wonderful and it made a strong impression on me. We lived as was traditional in those days on a missionary compound back in what they called, quote, the bush. That means that you didn't live in a village or a town. You just kind of lived out in the interior. Uh, we lived outside about 30 minutes away from this town called Gweru in the interior of Zimbabwe. And I was fascinated with it. The first essay I wrote in college I called it the African sunset because I had been overwhelmed by the beauty of the physical landscape. I was 13 at the time, and I would run down this 
twin strip back road for a couple miles every day. And on the way home, I would look out across the savannah and just look at the sky. So many colors and the savannas and the trees. I've loved Africa ever since. Wow, what a great perspective. Uh, But, Christy, Nigeria is not Zimbabwe and not located anywhere near it on the African continent, correct? (laughs) Well, that is absolutely correct. And what a horrible misconception for people that think of Africa as one place. Nothing could be farther from the truth. And you're absolutely correct in assuming that the landscapes of Zimbabwe are not the landscapes of Nigeria just as the landscapes of Tennessee aren't the landscapes of Florida or Minnesota. There are 54 independent countries in Africa. Compare that to North America, where we only have 23. Nigeria is in West Africa. It is farther north as well than Zimbabwe, although you have to remember much of Africa is in the Southern Hemisphere, but Nigeria is in the Northern Hemisphere, like kind of like the United States or Europe. Zimbabwe is in the southern hemisphere. It's also farther away from the equator. So Nigeria uh, has a hotter climate than Zimbabwe would have. Right. And another big difference is that Nigeria is on the, uh, the west coast of Africa, while Zimbabwe is totally landlocked. Exactly. And if you think of Africa like an upside-down L, which you can, think of Nigeria being kind of at the bend next to the Atlantic Ocean, whereas Zimbabwe is way down at the bottom. It's the second country to the bottom above South Africa. They're far from each other. But I will say Nigeria, like Zimbabwe, has savannas. So it does have those amazing landscapes with all... Uh, The wildlife, elephants, hippopotamuses, crocodiles, cheetahs. It just has a larger variety than Zimbabwe does. It has jungles and things like gorillas, too. (laughs) There you go. Well, and another difference from our reality here in North America and uh, an even more complex reality than climate and biodiversity and all that, the more complex thing is language. Yeah. While the majority of people in North America speak either English, French, or Spanish as their first uh, or heart language, and that is not the case in Africa. In Africa, there are more than 2,000 distinct languages, and Africa has a third of all the world's languages with less than a seventh of the world's population. Of course, Arabic is the most widely spoken language in Africa, but after Arabic, English is the second most widely spoken language. Exactly. What we need to understand, though, is that English is often not a person's first language. Uh, Many times African students, and this is a Chebe's case, will learn one language at home. uh, In a Chebe, that would be Igbo. But English is the language of school. It's the language of commerce. We call it a trade language. It's not the language of the indigenous stories. It's not the heart language of the traditional music. It's not the language of the people. An important point, uh, English has become a trade language for a lot of the world. And and even though over one and a half billion people on Earth speak English, only 400 million speak it as a first language. Right. And that's why even Brazil, where I grew up, most students study English as a second language, often as early as elementary school, because they want to conduct international business. And that's going to be a trade language you need that for. 
It's also why Achebe controversially chose to write his books in English instead of Ibu. There was a lot of pushback when he did the, to do that. People thought, well, you're writing in English. That's a betrayal. But now that we look back, we can see why he did it. He wanted his book to be for the world, so it had to be in a global language. And it certainly accomplished that goal, uh, but the diversity of cultures undoubtedly has created uh, a lot of challenges for the continent of Africa. I mean, as well as the richness of uh, cultural thought and perspective, all of which can be specifically seen in the history and culture of Nigeria. True. Uh, And I do want to talk about that. Actually, I want to let you talk about that. But before we leave my personal experiences, I want to bring up another thing about my life. I've told you that we lived in Zimbabwe as a child, but I'm not sure I mentioned to you that my mother was a missionary to Nigeria early in her life and really early in the life of that country. Nigeria became independent in 1960. My mother was an elementary school teacher there in 1968. That's just eight years later. When I read Things Fall Apart, uh, although it takes place much earlier, I read about these clashes between the missionaries uh, and the portrayal of the missionaries isn't necessarily all that positive. And at first, I didn't like that because it felt like Achebe was personally aggressing my mother, judging her and condemning her. Her little school was out in the bush outside a little town called Oshogbo. And from my perspective, from the stories of my childhood, I didn't see that my mother had any desire to exploit anybody. Uh, She was there to to serve people who needed to learn. She didn't view herself as a colonizer. She loved the people there. Uh, The missionaries in her mission learned local languages, and there was a hospital, and they provided medicines and services to local people. So my initial gut reaction was to oppose Achebe's portrayal and to say, You've misunderstood my mother completely. But of course, that is not Achebe's way. And he's going to make it hard to argue with him. And he understands my mother's perspective. His own grandfather was an orphan saved by missionaries. So he understands that reality. But he also saw his people, beyond just the physical loss of patrimony, lose their confidence and lose their culture. He saw his people see themselves as inferior, lots of times through financial coercion of Westerners, not just missionaries, but you can't exclude missionaries from the larger group of people. Some of it, you know, was not, I want to say, well, some of it was indirectly linked to some of the Ibu systems and the exclusions and hierarchies within their people. And he illustrates all this complexity in his book, Achebe wants readers to realize things are just not simple. He also wants us to realize it's not about any one person. It's not about any one person being a good person or being a bad person. It's not about any one group of people necessarily. He's not villainizing my mother, and he's also not glamorizing the character of Okonkwo. He wants to tell the story of his people from his point of view, a point of view from within. The story of Nigeria, like the story of humanity, is messy. It's a human story. And the more I read the speeches and the nonfiction writings of Achebe, as well as many who've come after him, 
the more I realize that it is about humanity. That's what Achebe seeks to express above all else. And I want to talk about that, but it's not going to be today when we get into his comments on the writing of Joseph Conrad. And it's an important story for the world to understand. The book is more relevant today than it was when he wrote it because technology is shrinking the world, but it still has a lot of different languages and worldviews and religions and value systems. And also, we're more aware than ever of the tragedies and uh, the aggressive nature of human history. And the book seems to resonate because he addresses where on a worldwide scale and, and he has an informed central vision on how we should proceed forward if something close to peace and mutual respect is ever going to exist. I think that's why Achebe finally succeeded in publishing his book. It literally took something of a miracle. And when it did, it became an instant success selling millions, even though the underconfident publisher only started out with like 2,000 copies. And since then, it's been translated into over 50 languages worldwide. There is something universal in these writings, and it resonates intuitively in the heart of every person who will read it, even though the Ibu culture is new and it can feel mysterious. Things Fall Apart was the first book written by an African to be introduced into the English curriculum on the continent of Africa. And since my initial introduction, I've watched Achebe lecture many times on YouTube videos. His persona, if you want me to be honest, kind of reminds me of Elie Wiesel's in many ways. Like Wiesel, Achebe was a soft-spoken man, especially in his later years. He exuded kindness and gentleness and wisdom after so many years of you know, the war and conflict in his own country. He understood peace and purpose in a special way. In fact, listening to him lecture in some ways makes you understand some of the world's most complex problems as something maybe they are that could be resolvable if we could just find humility and forgiveness and that is the legacy of the entire story of nigeria uh and that's where we must start as we are trying to give context to this book things fall apart into the life of achebe um american historian john Patton said and i quote nigeria must be the most complicated country in the world and uh, i don't know if anyone has tries to argue that differently but there are 520 different languages spoken there. and There are 100 different ethnic groups. And Nigeria is the only country in the world whose population is split just about 50-50 equally uh, between Muslims and Christians. And neither group has a clear majority. And those facts alone create unparalleled challenges anywhere else on Earth. But beyond that, we must not overlook uh, the incredibly um, tectonic impact of the uh, British Empire as it altered and changed the lives of the millions living not just in Nigeria, but in all of Africa. Let me point out uh, that the book Things Fall Apart did not make Achebe the first writer to write about Africa, not even the first African, but he was one of the first to publish in English from an African perspective, and at least it made his voice a very prominent and important one the time that he wrote it. 
As we've mentioned many times on here before, history is recorded by those who write it down. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's simple. And in West Africa, where Nigeria is located, history had been written primarily by the British soldiers themselves. And so, of course, this perspective was always skewed, leaving out the perspective of the indigenous people. But isn't it always the case that, you know, the domineering culture will get to write the perspective? Well, uh, you know, pretty much, but not always. I mean, in India, for example, um, the atrocities of colonialism were much better recorded by Indian nationals. And so they have a higher profile and we have much more knowledge of what happened in India as opposed to things that happened in West Africa, for example. Well, the story Things Fall Apart takes place sometime during the final decade of the 1900s in a little village of the Ibu people. What we do need to know uh, is, what is this place? Tell us about Europe's interactions with that area, as well as those people themselves. Well. (laughs) Can you do that in a nutshell? That's a huge topic. (laughs) That's a tall order. Um, let's start with the makeup of the land itself. So uh, Nigeria really is culturally divided. Today, 50% Muslim, 50% Christian, as we said. Uh, there is a reason for this, and it really has a lot to do with European colonization. The African slave trade started early, in the 1500s even, but Europeans did not uh, really go into the continent. They um, only went to the coast and bought slaves. The Africans didn't want them in the continent, so they fought them, uh, chased them out. But also Europeans strangely kept dying (laughs) whenever (laughs) whenever they went into the interior. And for centuries, they assumed it was the climate uh, and that heat was killing them. But in fact, as we well know now, it was malaria, a disease you get from a mosquito. Uh, They just didn't know that in that part of the 19th century. And Uh, In 1808, Britain had abolished slavery, and notice that's almost 60 years before the United States. But Britain still wanted African resources, and in Nigeria's case back then, uh, the the great natural resource they wanted was palm oil. Today, Nigeria's largest revenue source is oil, Uh, but that wouldn't be discovered until the 1950s. And anyway, after the abolition of slavery, the relationship between Britain and Nigeria went from extracting people from the continent to extracting its natural resources and uh, this was still being done through mercantilism and today what we understand is mercantile really mercantile colonization and still it was still physically difficult for the british to go themselves into the continent and this all changed when two technologies technologies emerged and one was the steamboat uh, and the other was quinine Quinine was a medicine that treats malaria, and this changed the reality. And the the British companies begin to colonize the land, and, you know, why pay and compete for resources when you can just go in and take them for yourself? And that's essentially the idea. In uh, Nigeria's case, this dirty work was done by a company called the British Niger Company, today known today as Unilever. Some of us might recognize that name. The story of what happened there is uh, too much to get into now and here, but it's it's bloody and crooked and corrupt, as you might imagine. And uh, The British didn't actually revoke the charter of the British Niger Company until the year 1900. And that is the year that the British government actually began to openly colonize Nigeria. And this is uh, outside the context where we drop in the book. So what about... So that's Nigeria, the country. What about this particular part where Akonkwo lived? Which part did he live in? 
Akonko's village is an Igbo village, and you have to remember that Nigeria is not just one place, and the Nigerian people are not just one people. The uh, easiest way, perhaps, for us uh, to understand this is in the Americas is to think of the indigenous people on the American continent. We had the Cherokee, and they were not the Arapaho, and the Arapaho were not the Sioux, and the Sioux were not the Iroquois, uh, you know, who are not the Hawaiians. I mean, every nation had its own unique culture and a language and, and a way of life. And some nations uh, are warriors, some are farmers. In the case of Nigeria, uh, the northern nations were Muslim and highly organized. They were ruled by emirs and these were connected. Uh, when the British colonized northern Nigeria, they asserted indirect control, uh, an easier and less messy way to colonize. They controlled the emir. The emir controlled the people. So the average person was maybe not even particularly aware of the arrangement. And local people had less contact with Europeans. And in the south, that was not the reality, uh, especially with the Igbo people. The Igbo people historically were actually democratic by tradition. There is a famous saying that says, the Igbo knows no king. They uh, believe strongly that every freeborn person had a right to have a say in the running of his society. The British had a much more difficult time subduing a nation with that kind of decentralized structure. Also, as we see in the book, the Igbo, as well as the southern tribes, were animistic. And they had many gods, not unlike the Hawaiians that we had talked about last week. And we see that in Things Fall Apart as well. And I know we're going to talk about the religion in another episode as well as the relationship with missionaries. But I want to say this was a problem for the British. There were millions of people all speaking different languages, 500 to be exact. They had no central government, no common religion. So the British came in as teachers, both secular uh, and religious, and in teaching English and Christianity, that's where they were successful. The, uh, the two most important legacies today of the British in Nigeria are the English language and the Christian religion. And uh, here's one of life's interesting ironies. Today, there are more people that speak English in Nigeria than speak English in Britain. <laughs> Also, there are more Christians in Nigeria than in Britain. And even more surprisingly, Nigeria sends out more Christian missionaries around the world than almost any other nation in spite of its huh. financial challenges. And the uh, largest evangelical church in Europe is a Nigerian church. Well, there's a reversal of fortunes. Well, this shows you how things just change over yeah. time. Well, Things Fall Apart is, you know, 1890. So you're talking about the beginning of this very open colonial period. Some European books make it sound like, well, this was just a pretty peaceful transition and the British were well received. <laughs> yes, that would be the soldiers' accounts. Okay? <laughs> but that is absolutely not the case. It was bloody and intensely violent and Whole villages, in some cases, were wiped out. Every person murdered. Every structure burned, and every tree flattened. Uh, after the initial war of conquest, there was a secondary wave of indigenous people fighting back, called the Ikumeku movement. This means the silent ones, and they went around at night um, as guerrilla warriors, starting in the early 1800s with the Royal Niger Company all the way through 1915. And also, I might add. Often the British would hire warrior nations of the north to come down and subdue the southern nations. So 
You can see this does not unite people very well. No, I would say that it does not. It also breeds a culture of corruption, and uh, there should be little wonder that six years after Nigeria won its independence from the British, it plunged itself into a bloody civil war that cost the Igbo three million lives just in that group. Oh, my gosh. Well... That's not the context. That particular civil war isn't the context of this book. But I will say Achebe has other books. And he continues to tell the story of the Igbo people in fiction. But he also wrote a personal memoir about those bloody civil war years called There Was a Country. Yes, and it's worth reading. And let me just add this one thing before we leave the the history of things. And although Nigeria has many challenges and some of them are natural and some are imported from the colonial experience, it's important to note that the Nigerian story today is in some ways kind of a qualified success and something the world should really pay attention to. I mean, by the end of the century, there will be three quarters of a billion Nigerians. And wow. Today, two-thirds of their population is under the age of 30. I mean, it's a young country in every way, and the people there are as different as you can imagine, but they do share one belief. What's that? They have a desire to preserve this country. Um, They know they did not create their own borders, but today those borders are, are sacred. And they know they have cultural and religious differences that have caused, um, you know, more violence than we can ever understand in the West. But today they have innovations to cope with these problems. They've got a federal affirmative action system, uh, for example, to ensure that uh, no ethnic group is favored above other groups and a presidency that must alternate between one being a Christian and next being a Muslim and back and forth. And all of these are aimed at forming peace and keeping it. So we must respect and understand the history we're reading, but also the promise of the Nigerian project, which the country has really kind of purchased at a very high price. Wow. Well, that's something obviously to respect. And kind of the world is going that way with the diversity. But going back in time, uh, not to this story, but to Achebe's personal life story, I think we need to know, you know, who we, where did he come in? Well, he was born in 1930. And his parents, and this should make more sense now, were deeply Christian and raised Achebe as a Christian. In fact, his first name was a British name, and this wasn't uncommon at all, Albert Chinuel Lumongu Achebe. And we'll talk more about names next week. But he was raised to read his Bible every day. He attended church services, all the things that Christian children in any country do. However, he wasn't just a child of Christianity. He was also very interested in the Ibu tradition, and that included Ibu religion. In his little village as a child, uh, people there were half Christian, half of them, and the other half of them were traditional in their beliefs. Achebe's father was a minister, a Christian minister, so he was going to make his son attend English and Anglican schools. But they were in a village, and village life was everywhere. So he enjoyed traditional festivals, and he heard stories and tales of the Ibu people. And although his mother was a Christian, she told him a lot of the traditional proverbs and maintained the traditions that had been handed down through the families through the very strong oral tradition of the people. So Chebe grew up a child of two worlds, an Ibu world and a colonial world. And because he was incredibly gifted, a bright student, he was identified fairly early on as a student who could 
potentially even work for the British Empire. He received scholarships and he attended the very prestigious University College. Now it's the University of Ibadan, but he was a medical student. Although I will say he hated medicine <laughs> and quit and, and changed his course of study consciously to English literature, which was a big deal because he made him lose all of his scholarship money. So he had to pay, his family had to pay out of pocket for him to make that change in those early days. And it was there that he started to write. One of the biggest influences on Achebe's career was when he read uh, Joseph Conrad's famous novel about Africa, Heart of Darkness. He had read it as a child, uh, but he read it again as a university student. And this is what he said. Conrad was a seductive writer. He could pull his reader into the fray. And if it were not for what he said about me and my people, I would probably be thinking only of that seduction. (laughs) Well, I would like to note, first of all, one of the things that I like to bring up a lot about our authors, they yeah. write out of what they know. And the fact that he lived in these two worlds, the Ibu world and the colonial world, is fascinating. Well, yeah. It, it gives him a perspective nobody else can have. Uh, but getting back to Conrad, today we would find Conrad's portrayal of any group of people alarmingly offensive. Well, of course we would. And Achebe realized it immediately because they were talking about him and his people. This is what he says. The language of description of the people in Heart of Darkness is inappropriate. I realized how terribly, terribly wrong it was to portray my people or any people from that attitude. Well, his reaction is really a model for all of us. I mean, he recognized a bad idea and uh, he fought it by countering it with a better idea. He chose to write and publish his own story and, and the story of his people from his perspective. Exactly. And years later, you know, he was asked if he thought Comrade's book should be banned. Uh, he was empathetic. Uh, he said, I can see why you would, but no. And amazingly, today, lots of English teachers still teach Joseph Conrad's book, but they don't teach it in isolation. They teach it with Achebe's book. That's great. I I love that. I mean, don't shut people up by force. (laughs) Just have a superior idea. Right. And his superior idea changed the course of not just his life, but the trajectory of African literature for all time. Achebe received over 30 honorary degrees during his lifetime. He published political essays and novels and poetry and short stories. He published Things Fall Apart in 1958, which we said, but he was only 27 at the time. Uh, He'd worked on it much longer. He wrote it out by hand, sent his only copy to a typesetter in England, and they just sat on it, almost lost it. Uh, And he said that he probably would have never written anything again if they had lost it. But a friend of his got it out, and they printed their little 2,000 copies, and then it just changed the world forever. I do want to say, this is on a personal note, he married a girl named Christiana, and they called her Christy. Oh, another <laughs> muse. They were married for over 50 years, by the way, at the time of his death in 2013. I want to point out that in 1999, Things Fall Apart inspired, and, and that was a title for the fourth studio album by American hip-hop band The Roots. If you know The Roots, then good <laughs> on you for knowing who they are. Awesome. Uh, and that album went platinum, which means it sold over a million copies. So he's not just an ab- academic guy. He, he hits all the cultural highlight points. I think we can safely say 
that Achebe did have a better idea. So should we start tackling it? Sure. Let's do it. All right. Let's talk about the title. Things Fall Apart uh, is an epigraph from a poem by W.B. Yeats. Now, Yeats is a Nobel Prize winning Irish writer. And the poem Achebe quotes was published in 1920, one year after the end of World War One, And we've talked about, you know, the devastation of World War One more than once. So Achebe gets the phrase, things fall apart, which becomes obviously the title of his book, from this poem called The Second Coming. Now we know that Eliot, T.S. Eliot, and many of these war po- poets uh, believed that World War One was supposed to be the war to end all wars, but it murdered millions of people and it created despair in Europe, unlike anything people had known before. Yeats's first stanza starts with these famous four lines that contain the title of the book. So let me read the whole stanza for you and listen. Now remember, when Yeats is writing it, he's thinking about World War One. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. All right, so the epigraph to Achebe's book is the is in the first four lines, and it's In its own right, it's easily one of the most famous and frequently quoted poems in all of Western literature. But the context, we know, is the realization that basically European society had pretty much broken down. Some people were still optimistic about the future, but Yeats wasn't. He thought that the deconstruction of society had left his world vulnerable. His poem is a terrifying prediction of future violence. And of course, we know now from history that there was a lot more violence to come after World War One. Hitler and World War Two are right around the corner. Achebe uses these lines as an epigraph, and an epigraph is just a short quotation that you put at the beginning of your book. And by using these lines from The Second Coming, which is a very well-known poem, as the introduction for his book, Achebe is clearly making a parallel between what the Europeans had done to themselves in World War I and what the British had done in Igbo land. As Europeans had deconstructed Europe and left it devastated and vulnerable to future violence, European colonization of Africa had done exactly the same thing. You know, what's brilliant about that is that Achebe uses the language of the colonizer I know, his own poem. (laughs) Literally and figuratively. And and he uses it to enlighten the European heirs of colonialism on the point of view of the people who've been colonized. And it's worth looking at the poem more closely, which we'll do in our poetry supplement. And it's a brilliant parallel. The specifics of the poem are incredibly relevant to things fall apart. The poem begins with an image of a falcon flying out of earshot of its human master. And in medieval times, people would use falcons or hawks to track down animals at the ground level. But in actual falconry, the bird is not supposed to keep flying in circles forever. It's eventually supposed to come back and land on the falconer's glove. When the image, however, the 
falcon has gotten itself lost by flying too far away, which we can read as a reference to the collapse of traditional social arrangements in Europe at the time of Yeats' writing. But it's exactly how Achyebe sees what has happened to the Igbo social and religious structure that has supported their society for hundreds of years. Yeats will make the argument in his poem that living as Europe was living, uh, he's saying things the sinner cannot hold. And that's the point Achebe is making, and things fall apart. And as a result of the colonizing efforts of the British, the Igbo people, they were stripped of their social and moral rules that had given them a center for centuries, and it just couldn't hold. The term second coming in the poem makes you think you're talking about the second coming of Christ, the one where Christ comes to earth and he uh, makes heaven or utopia on earth. Exactly. And of course, that's ironic because World War II did not usher in the second coming of Christ accompanied with peace and prosperity, but instead it opened the doors to greed, destruction, and chaos. Again, Achebe's parallel. The coming of the Europeans did not bring in the second coming of Christ. Instead, it loosed anarchy on the world, to use as Yeats' words. For Achebe, the horrors of imperialism were marked by the coercing and brutalizing of his people, fueled absolutely mostly by greed. I'm not sure T.S. Eliot, who we all know is the king of illusions, could have topped a more effective example of this technique. (laughs) I think it's enough to say, I hope we brought a little bit of the context of the country of Nigeria, uh, and we talked about where Achebe got the title, that we're ready to begin with the first page of the novel and introduce our hero, Akonkwo. That's the last piece of setting I think we need to do to set up the story. I know we're getting into a lot of context, but that's the whole point. It's really necessary in this book to have context. It's groundbreaking. The context is foundational to understanding the complexity uh, of what Achebe is saying, and so it can't be overlooked. Uh, I agree. Context is what makes uh, a written work brilliant. Without the context, you don't understand why it even exists. But and there's just so much more here than we're familiar with. Well, and I agree. So let me read page one. All right, let's start. Page one. Things fall apart. Okonkwa was well known throughout the nine villages and even beyond. His fame rested on solid personal achievements. As a young man of 18, he had brought honor to his village by throwing Amalins the cat. Amalins was the great wrestler who for seven years was unbeaten. From Umofia to Banyo, he was called the cat because his back would never touch the earth. It was this man that Okonkwo threw in a fight which the old men agreed was one of the fiercest since the founder of their town engaged the spirit of the wild for seven days and seven nights. The drums beat and the flutes sang and the spectators held their breath. Amalins was a wily craftsman, but Okonkwo was as slippery as a fish in water. Every nerve and every muscle stood out in their arms, on their backs and their thighs, and one almost heard them stretching to breaking point. In the end, Okonkwo threw the cat. That was many years ago, 20 years or more, and during this time, Okonkwo's fame had grown like a bushfire in the Harmaton. He was tall and huge, and his bushy eyebrows and wide nose gave him a very severe look. He breathed heavily, and it was said that when he slept, 
His wives and children in their houses could hear him breathe. When he walked, his heels hardly touched the ground, and he seemed to walk on springs as if he was going to pounce on somebody. And he did pounce on people quite often. He had a slight stammer, and whenever he was angry and could not get his words out quickly enough, he would use his fists. He had no patience with unsuccessful men. He had had no patience with his father. I read one time that one of the questions most often asked to Achebe was why did he make his hero flawed? Wasn't he supposed to be highlighting the greatness of the Ibu culture? Achebe's response is so nuanced and understated, its genius floors me. He said no, he had no interest in glamorizing Africa. He didn't want to glamorize Ibu culture. He said Africa did not consist of savages. Africa does not consist of angels. Africa is filled with people. And the cultures of Africa, like every other culture on planet Earth, are a mixed bag. There is no perfect hero or perfect culture. There is no perfect place, which is something I think people forget about in Americas. But anyway, uh, we must love and accept all of it. In Akanko's case, Achebe creates an Ibu character. Now, we've read how the Greeks, you know, they are also big into creating heroes. And so Akanko is going to be an Ibu hero. We saw a little hero in Bilbo because <laughs> Tolkien did that. But let's look at Akanko. Patrick um, Noromeli, he's a, also a writer, but he's a member of the Ibu people, says that a hero in the Ibu culture is one of great courage and strength. And you're going to get that. That's what you're supposed to have seen in that very initial description. A man who works against the destabilizing forces of his community and affects the destiny of others. We're going to see that. Look for that. His life, though, is defined by contradictions, ambivalence, because his actions must stand in sharp contrast to ordinary behavior. A hero cannot exist outside of the community because he has to stand out in the community. That's just by definition. If he is ambitious, he has obligations to his society. Sometimes that creates a problem if your self-interest comes in conflict with the society that you're in. We can see that in any culture. But this is a complicated problem. So when we get to Unconquo, we immediately understand that the single passion of his life, and you're going to see this straight up in chapter one, is to be one of the lords of the clan. Achebe describes it as a life spring. But the first challenge he's going to face is his father, because his father is a loser. So in the first chapter, Akankwo is going to be set up as a contrast to his father. His father was a male, but among the Ibu, he was never a man, and they make this distinction. In order for Akankwo to become a hero, the first thing that he has to do is to overcome his father's reputation. So that's just a little taste of what's to come. We'll stop there for today. Sounds kind of Freudian to me. Uh, well, we're going to get into a lot of Ibu culture next week, and I don't know. You can tell me how Freudian it is. <laughs> I really love culture. I love history, and I love seeing it. So I know I don't want to go overboard, but I'm also very excited about this book, and I hope that you have enjoyed reading it. And if you haven't, 
pick it up and get started. It's a quick read. It really is. Uh, you know, I love it too. And I've never been to Africa, so this is opening up a new world for me. And I'm excited and I look forward to discussing uh, the next few chapters next week. So thank all of you for being with us today. As always, we like to ask you to follow us on our social media. Uh, check us out on our webpage, howtolovelypodcast.com. And do the easy thing. Share an episode with a friend. Yes, let them, please. Let them find out about all that's going on on the How to Love Lit podcast. Peace out. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.